Well, as I have been doing each week, I'll start by reading Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, we started last week, well, we sort of finished up looking at uh, the matter of rewards and scriptures along that line that are distorted, twisted to make them seem as if they talk about eternal life and losing eternal life. And we began to look at a little bit about uh, chastening and how, again, some will take those scriptures and twist them and try to make them look as if they have to do with eternal life or losing eternal life. Uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians three thirteen through 17. And uh, in verse 15, we saw that our works will be tested by fire, the fire of God's righteous judgment. Usually in scripture, when you see fire used figuratively, it has to do with God's judgment. And those whose works are burned, those who live according to their will, their own plans, their own desires, their own purposes, and not God's, We'll see those works burned. Uh, we don't get credit for good things that happen while we're walking outside of God's will. Anyway, in verse 15, it says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So clearly the loss of reward is not a loss of eternal life. In verse 17 of that passage, uh, we saw that there is a chastening in this present life. And that if we choose to defile ourselves with the purposes, the sins, the carelessness, the unclean fellowship of this world, there will be a chastening in keeping with that choice. If anyone defiles, that is, brings corruption, because that's what the word, I've got both those words highlighted, they're both the same Greek word, if anyone brings corruption into the temple of God, God will corrupt him. For the temple of God is holy. That's God's intention. He doesn't take it lightly if we bring defilement into this temple, which temple ye are. Uh, again, it speaks of corruption, and Paul expressed the same thought in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, in the beginning of verse 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. But he who, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And so this chastening, this corrupting, this, this thing that comes to those who walk according to the flesh and will come at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, it, uh, that, that's the uh, judgment of works, but here in this life, the chastening is in the body, a corrupting that can actually lead to the ending of this life. Uh, I thought also of 1 Corinthians 9.27. I don't recall if I used it in this passage, but again, Paul was talking there about rewards. I don't have it on screen, but he talked about... Uh, maintaining a certain discipline in his life and he said lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified he's talking about a race and a reward and uh, it's it's loved by those who uh, 
who want to believe that you can lose eternal life because they quote it from the, new, or from the old King James where it says, lest I be cast away, which is not a good translation, but boy, it sounds like you're gone when that happens. So let's look a little bit more uh, at the issue of sin, the character and the inevitable result of sin. And let's combine that with what we know about just how severe God's chastening can be. Now, God's chastening is gracious always. By the way, that word chastening doesn't always have to do with, you know, punishment. If your child is not figuring out his arithmetic or her arithmetic very well and you make them sit down and memorize the times tables, they will accuse you of cruelty. Right? But it's just a learning process. And so God's chastening is intended to be a learning process. He doesn't do it just, we're his children. He doesn't just beat us for the sake of beating us. It's all intended to be training. Nevertheless, that training can at some point become very, very severe toward his disobedient children. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 speaks, I believe, of the most extreme, most severe, the final chastening that God might give. Um, You can read of the nature of the the sin of the person involved in this chastening. Uh, I'm not going to read it here this morning, but here's what the Holy Spirit led Paul to write. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Do you have any question about what that is? Destruction means destruction. So this is a chastening unto death if there is not a repentance. Now again, it, it, the, the man involved, apparently, if you read Paul's letters, he did repent. And even when God sets this before you, I, I've told the story, and I think in the course of this series of lessons, told the story about when the Lord began to deal with me back in the spring of 1969 that I needed to turn to him. He made it clear to me that it's either turn or you're done. And I turned. Thank God that he gives the opportunity for repentance. Now again, chastening is intended to teach. So if the Lord lets it be known, as it was known to this man who was guilty of a very gross sin, uh, no, you know, this is going to end in, in destruction of the physical body. It's still an opportunity to stop Listen, learn, and repent, because God is always gracious. But nevertheless, you see the severity. We saw that kind of chastening last week as well in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30. For this reason, because of disorder. And some might look on their disorder. I mean, it wasn't murder. It wasn't immorality in the common sense. They weren't robbing banks. They weren't kidnapping people but there was disorder in the assembly and the way they conducted themselves in the memorial of the Lord's death what we call the communion and uh, so it says for this cause for this reason many are weak and sick among you and many sleep now as I have said and as I believe I said last week not all sickness or or death Sleeping, the body sleeps, is a result of our sin. It's a result of sin because of grandfather Adam. 
But there are times when God will impose a successive increasing severity of judgment in in a desire and an effort to bring his people back into order. So always gracious, but severe. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we would stop and look at our lives and say, this is not God's will for me. And it may not be a sin. It's just God has a purpose for your life, a plan for your life. He gives you his leading, his direction. You choose to ignore it for whatever reason, whatever justification you may create. You look at it and you say, this isn't right, and you turn around. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, something that you may have picked up on both of those passages refer to the fact that the erring one um, will be saved and that this chastening process, even the severe chastening, has a part in that. That or so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And again, that or so that we may not be condemned with the world. When God deals with us in our rebellion he deals with us as his children and I'll be honest there are aspects of I'm going to do this so that your spirit may be saved I'm going to do this so you won't be condemned with the world there's an aspect of that quite honestly that I don't understand and and I don't see that God clarifies it now I may discover that he makes it really crystal clear someday thank God we don't have to stop learning But whether I fully understand it or not, I believe it. God expresses his purpose, even in the severest of chastening, he said, my purpose is always toward you, my children, that you may be saved. That's his intention. His intention does not change because of our bad intentions or bad behavior. He set out to save us, and now that we've accepted him, now that we've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. Now that we belong to him, how much more shall we be saved from wrath, Paul tells us in Romans 5. And so many who oppose the good things that we're looking at are going to claim that you and I, because we teach that eternal life is eternal, because we believe that if you're a child of God, you will always be a child of God. Because we understand from the scripture that our citizenship is in heaven. You know, I was born a citizen of the United States. I may do a lot of bad things. I might, I might become a traitor. I might, I might do something to damage my country, and there are still federal laws on the books that they can put me down. But if they do that, I will die a citizen of the United States. Our citizenship is in heaven. That doesn't change. Nothing changes those things. And so, yeah, those that that say we are soft on sin are wrong. You know, God takes, they say that we fail to, to recognize God's judgment. We don't. We just understand them as he lays them out in scripture, which is differently than what they choose to see. God doesn't take sin lightly. And we must never take sin lightly. And I have seen and I could 
name cases, and I'm not going to do it. It wouldn't be profitable of people that decided they could use the grace of God for corruption and get away with it, and they were wrong. We can't take those things lightly. God doesn't, and we mustn't. Now, there are multiple scriptures that mention death and are pointed to uh, by those who want to believe that eternal life can be lost, and I don't know why anybody would want to, but they seem to. And I'm only going to use one. I probably shouldn't even say this, but it bores me to read the scriptures, to read their interpretation of the scriptures that are so... Their opinion, their statements betray such a carelessness as far as really looking at what God's intention is when he speaks. And some of them, some of them are just like, I don't think I need to explain them to you. They are so obvious. And um, so I only picked one. There's a whole raft of them. And if you have any questions about any others that have to do with death, and you want to send, I, I'm, not, I'm not putting up my email address anymore. You can use that one or my regular one. I might find in my regular one. It's so covered up with stuff, I may not. But questions for DF. Anyway, I'm only going to use one. James 5, 19 and 20. This is one of the favorites. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And, of course, the thing to jump on here is soul. Save a soul from death. Well, you know, take time to study. How many of you have a strong concordance, either a book or something on a, on a phone or something where you can look up the meaning of words. Um, the word soul has to do with breath. <sighs> All right? I am a living, breathing being. And sometimes in Scripture, when you see that word used, it has to do with what we would call the immortal soul. And it's important to realize that that's, a, that's an accurate use of that word. But sometimes it just has to do with the physical breathing life. It can speak of the entire course of your life as your soul. Not referring to eternal life and eternal existence just this time when you're breathing here. Your self-awareness here, your, your, the course of your path here. Um, and, well, I'm just going to give you three instances from three different scripture writers in which the word translated soul here, James, is correctly translated life. In Matthew 19, excuse me, Matthew 2, 19 and 20, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Same word translated soul. You've got to see the context sometimes. You know, have you ever looked at certain words? Read people talk about Native Americans as being read. I, I just don't see that. 
You can get sunburned. You can be red. Uh, you have red hair. All those are little different colors, you know. If you were communist, you were red. <laughs> Context is important in the language, and it's important in Scripture where God chooses the language. They didn't choose somehow to destroy Jesus' eternal soul. They sought to kill him. They wanted his life. In Acts chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives, not their souls in the sense that we think of that word generally. They risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 16, verses 3, in the beginning of verse 4, Greek Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their own necks. By the way, that's not just a turn of phrase there. They were risking their necks if they went up against the government in that day. Who risked their own necks for my life. And, and so what can happen if we reach out to somebody. Now, I'm, I'm going to pause here and insert something. The scripture says, uh, I'm talking about an erring person, ye who are spiritual. And it goes on and talks about dealing that one. I have seen people who didn't, let me back up again. If the spirit leads you to do something, you know, don't decide something is the leading of the spirit learn to know the voice and the leading of the spirit so the leading of the spirit trumps everything else but in the meanwhile the instruction is for you who are spiritual to offer correction so it takes some maturity it takes some growth it takes some development sometimes it's a pastor's job not your job i i can't define when that is but i've just seen people make messes trying to do what God wasn't leading them to do. But the fact is that you can deal with a person who is engaged in sin and disobedience and save them from the most severe chastening. You can save a life from death. You know, it's not legalistic. It's not ungracious. It's not uh, humanly judgmental to recognize sin and to address sin and sometimes to offer correction to the one who is taking a life in the wrong direction. It can be a gracious, a kind, a loving act to save that person from the results of the direction that they're taking. And that's what's set before us there in James. Um, so, Again, I'm only looking at this one scripture. If you have other scriptures along this line that you'd like to ask me about, send me an email. But I will add this. Both physical and spiritual death came by Adam's sin. Christ took care of the spiritual aspect of the cross, didn't he? We still die physically. If the Lord doesn't return, I mean, I'm theoretically, genetically, family history-wise, I could live to be older than I want to live to be. But if the Lord doesn't come back soon, I'm going to go. I, I look around, I remember my father saying to me, David, 
I have more friends in heaven than I have on earth. I'm getting there. <laughs> At some point, I'll be next, right? Uh, so physically, we'll still die, but Jesus, well, Jesus said this, John 5, 24. I've used this verse a lot. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. There's the permanence. It's a gift. And shall not come into judgment. The old King James says condemnation. But has passed, has departed from, has exited from death into life. We have departed from spiritual death. Jesus took our judgment at the cross. We, are move, we have moved out of and beyond the issue of spiritual death. We have been given the gift of eternal life. Moving on to another area. There are multiple scriptures, again, that use the word fall or fallen that are used to support that mistaken idea that uh, a saved person can lose the gift of eternal life. And again... I'm just going to comment on one. And if you have questions about others, feel free to ask me or our pastor. The one I have chosen is the one that's most commonly cited along this line. In Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 4, all of a sudden I can't remember the author's name, but there's a man who wrote just an outstanding book on a commentary on the book of Romans. Wish I could remember his name. Doesn't matter, I guess, but just... It was outstanding. And so somebody gave me his commentary on Galatians. <laughs> it was fair, but when it got to this passage, it fell apart. Because he totally misinterpreted this passage. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty which Christ, by which Christ has made us free, and do not be tangled again in a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Our pastor commented on that obligation just the other night. You can't pick and choose. If you want to be under the law, you have to be careful. You don't want to wear, for instance, uh, they used to call it Lindsay Woolsey, linen and wool blended. I mean, you can't do that. You're going to have to give up your bacon. There are certain haircuts you can and can't do. Tattoos? I don't think so. If you want to be under the law, there's just a list of things that people would, they'll ignore today because they pick and choose. But, uh, well, anyway, uh, a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified and sometimes that word can just mean to be seen as being just, declared to be just. You have fallen from grace. Now, before I address that phrase, fallen from grace, I want to think about a couple of other statements there. Uh, I, Paul, tell you, well, that's not where I want to be. I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. That can be misinterpreted. <laughs> I'll give you one misinterpretation that I've never seen anybody use, but it's, it's built in there if you want to misinterpret this passage. Um, first of all, 
Paul wasn't talking about infant circumcision. If someone was circumcised as a baby. Now you could take that passage. If you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Those poor kids. Their parents had them circumcised and now they can't be saved. Isn't that stupid? Well, it is. First of all, Paul wasn't talking about that. He was referring to those who decide they must follow the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. But secondly, from other scriptures, we know that it is absurd to think that because, you know, compare scripture with scripture. Always, always, context, word meaning, compare scripture with scripture. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What happened, happened, and now you call on the name of the Lord and salvation is yours. But just so we could wrongly decide that a, a Christian choosing to be circumcised as a means of salvation would lose eternal life, would lose eternally their relationship with Christ. Um, when I was, I don't know, I think 15, I ran away from home. I, I was... I was, an, you may think your kids are stupid. I, I hope you don't. But I was exceptionally stupid when I was a kid. And so I ran away from home. And for three weeks, I walked for miles and miles. I hitchhiked, met some strange people. I rode freight trains, met some even stranger people. And I have stories to tell, but I slept outdoors and I didn't have any outdoor equipment, and I didn't have good warm clothes, and uh, I got hungry, and so I knocked on doors, and I'd ask people, you have any odd jobs I can do for a bite to eat? And I discovered the first time I did that, you know, skinny little boy, hungry. They never had odd jobs, but they always gave me a sandwich. But it wasn't like Mama's cooking, I'll tell you what. And so for that time I lived rough and uncomfortably and frankly dangerously and I'll leave those stories off during that time I received no benefit no profit from the fact that I had parents now were they praying for me yes does Christ continually intercede for us yes but I didn't get any of my mama's cooking I wore dirty clothes I didn't get to take a bath. Uh, I, I, I didn't benefit from that bed that they had provided me to sleep in. And I could go on and on and talk about the benefits that I gave up. I was receiving no profit, but I did not lose my place as being my parents' child. They did not stop wanting to do good for me. They did not cast me out. All I needed to do to return to that benefit was stop being stupid and pick up where I left off. I did wind up picking up where I left off. It took me a while to stop being stupid. and Maybe you don't think I've stopped yet. But anyway, the same is true of a child of God. If you drift off into error or foolishness of this sort or that, law-keeping, some strange doctrine, immorality, if you'll stop being stupid... And return to the fellowship that can be yours. It's sorted out. Then it says also you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law. The word translated estranged literally means to be idle or useless. 
So that relationship, as it was with my parents, it, it became idle. There was no washing and ironing my clothes. There was no paying the bills so I'd have warmth and hot water. There was no providing food because that relationship was idle. It was useless to me during that time. It does not mean that the benefit received already has magically disappeared. I was born into a family. My parents provided for me for many years. That benefit was there. They had trained me. They had taught me. I knew right from wrong. That benefit was there. The relationship for us established by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ does not cease just because we behave foolishly. Rather, by turning from an entire trust in him uh, and him only, the flow of blessings has been idled along with our interaction with him. We've engaged, if we go with the law, we've engaged in idle, pointless, useless religion. It means that we're not availing ourselves of his grace for our daily lives. Well, I'll tell you what, I've got a little bit more in my notes, but I believe it would take too long, so we're going to take our break now. God bless you.